If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Romans. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Romans. As you know, we've been going through the book of Romans for a couple weeks now. We're uh, laying a foundation for our, uh, for our church, saying, hey, we need to work on, uh, make sure that the foundation of our church is good as we hope to pray to see it grow. And part of that foundation, really the core of it, is understanding the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, I want you guys to repeat after me. Everybody say, God. Man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. That's the shape of the gospel. We need to know who God is, who man is, what Jesus has done to fix man's problem, and how we should respond to that message. That's the shape of the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. And we found that we see all of those components in the first four chapters of Romans. And that's why we are going through the book of Romans um, chapters 1 through 4 to see that foundation of the gospel. And we talked about the thesis statement, the, the summary statement of this whole book is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let's read this together um, as, we, uh, as we go to go to look at this book. Let's read this together. One, two, three. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Is that starting to get stuck in anybody's mind as we read it each each week in and out? I hope it is, um, because that's the thesis statement of this book. And as we think about where we've been so far in this book, we've seen that God, there is a God. He's the ruler. Um, he, he rules over us and we're accountable to him. Every single one of us are accountable to him. And he not only rules over us, he reveals himself to us. He shows us who he is. He tells us um, about his character. He makes that known in, in the creation You can see that in in nature, but he also makes that known in his word. And he reveals in his word that he is a gracious savior and a righteous judge. He loves and will forgive to the uttermost, yet he's not going to sweep over sin and ignore sin. And we talked about how that creates the divine problem. How can God be ultimately just and yet call sinful men just? How can he do that? Well, we're That's a story that's going to be told, right? We're going to see how Jesus makes that possible um, later on in chapter 3. But as for now, we've seen God's this creator, and there's this this problem within uh, within existence because of that. And we've seen the nature of man, right? We looked last week that every person's made in God's image. Every single one of us is made in his image, and that gives us value as human beings, but it also gives us responsibility to reflect his image, right? We're that 45-degree mirror that we talked about. As God's, uh, God, God's character shines down on us and hits that 45-degree mirror, it should reflect that light out into the world. But we talked about we all fail to do that. We fail to do that. And we saw that is the definition of sin, failing to do that. And today, to to piggyback on that idea, we were made in the image of God. Today, we're going to talk about how human beings, part of our nature is that we are now sinners. We are now sinners, right? We've, We've gone from the image of God. We become sinners. And in our passage this morning, we're going to read, we've read over the past few weeks, Romans 1, 18 through 25. We're going to read this whole passage Um, We're going to look at what it says about us Um, because it says something about God, but also says something about us and about our sin. 
And this morning, I'm praying that all of us, including this preacher standing here, can get a better grasp of what sin really is. Not that it is an oops or a mistake that we've made, but that it is an affront to a holy God. But also that he provides a way for us to be forgiven of that. So if you have a Bible, let's read Romans chapter 1. We're going to read all the way from 18 down to 32, so it's a good chunk of Scripture. So read along with me in your Bible. Let's read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the immortal God, uh, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and not only to do them, Uh, Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And the passage ends there. Now, if you get to read the book of Romans, you get to read on to the good news. But as you read that, you can feel, man, there's a weight that comes along with all of that. And this does not feel good. As I'm reading that, I I am sympathizing with you. I feel the weight and the difficulty of that passage. And and I want to say up front, we want to have that, that, that bad news sit on us, but I also want to say there's more to this story, right? There's more to this book of Romans. Paul finishes his thoughts later on in this book. But for now, let's dig in and see what he's trying to say in this section. I want you to notice that, number one, we see the seed of sin in this passage. We see the seed of sin, S-E-E-D, seed of sin. Every human we see from this passage knows God because God makes it plain to them. God shows them his immortal qualities, divine attributes, and they have no excuse because they know who God is. Um, That means every single person. This this particular section um, is probably aimed at the Gentiles. Um, within this church and within within existence, right? The Gentiles were the people who were not Jewish people, um, not those who were called the people of God and had God's law for thousands of years. Uh, these were people who were apart from God. And as Paul is saying this, he's probably aiming it at the Gentiles, those who did not have God's book, 
Yet they still had God's, uh, the requirements to live according to how God wanted them to live. That's why it says the wrath, is, wrath of God is revealed against them. But it says God has made himself known. So every human knows God. And then also every human forgets God. Every human forgets God. In this passage, it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him. This is verse 21. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. And then in verse 25, you can see they exchanged the truth about God for lie and worshiped and served creature rather than creator. So they didn't honor him. They didn't thank him. They didn't worship him. They didn't glorify him. And in all of those things, that, that's not the proper response that we should have to the fact that there is a God over us. We should honor him, thank him, worship him, and glorify him because that's what we were made to do. But every human, at some point in their life, chooses to forget God in that way. They choose not to say thank you for the great gifts that he's given us. When we thank somebody, what we're doing is we're acknowledging what they've done. We're acknowledging who they are and what they've done for us. And when we forget to thank him, that's another way of not honoring him. That's another way of not worshiping him. That's another way of not glorifying him. So every human knows God, every human forgets God, and every human replaces God. Every human replaces God. The passage says they exchanged the truth for a lie. They replaced creator with the created. They chose to worship creation and things they see in creation rather than the one who created it all. Really, it's not just that they replaced creator with created. They replaced creator with themselves. And Paul's framing sin as going against your nature. You were created to reflect God, and as you don't reflect him, you're going against your nature. Inside every human heart, or inside every human, there's a heart. And inside every human heart, there's a tiny throne. And on every throne, there's either man or God. Those are the options. Either God is sitting on the throne of your heart as he should be, guiding your life toward flourishing and fulfillment and happiness and and satisfaction and glory to him. Or you're in the driver's seat. Guiding your life, making, choosing right and wrong on your own terms, defining for yourself what's right and wrong. Being your own God might seem wise, too, as this passage says. It says, um, seeming to be wise, they became fools and their hearts were darkened. Sometimes making your own rules would be really nice, right? Uh, anybody ever play a, a game, like a card game with a kid, like five, six? They want to make the rules for themselves, right? I want to change the rules because that seems wise. Uh, That would be more beneficial to me. I would love to change the rules and decide what's right and wrong in the game because it would benefit me. And it seems kind of smart, right? If you change the rules, then you get to win. That, That seems wise. But as we saw Eve in the garden, maybe she would have thought what she was doing was wise, right? As she walks up to the tree, the serpent says to her, hey, did God really say She begins to doubt in her heart what God really said. And then the serpent says, hey, if you eat this food, it's it's good. It's pleasing to the eye and you'll be like God. Your eyes will be open. God's keeping something from you. And you can see in her mind thinking, yeah, why shouldn't I have that? It would be better for me. That would be wise for me to change the rules of the game that I can benefit from them. 
So that, that wisdom that she thought was wise became foolish. And friends, for us, for you, this morning, changing the rules or deciding what's right and wrong in your own terms may feel wise and smart at the time, but it turns out to be a foolish endeavor, as is said. So Paul's point, I think, can be illustrated in this. Um, I, I thought and thought and thought of a good illustration. If you have a better one, come and explain it to me. But imagine that every plant that you see in existence comes from the same seed. Now, if you brought a bunch of seeds up to me right now and placed them on this table, I couldn't tell you what seed grew into what plant because I, I don't know that kind of thing, right? Maybe some of you do. Maybe you could pick out a, a, a seed for a tree versus a seed for a flower versus a seed for, you know, some vegetables, whatever. But imagine for a moment that every seed in, in existence looked the same. Okay, it looked exactly the same. But depending on where you planted that seed that seed would grow up into something different, right? So if you plant the tree in this soil, or sorry, you plant the seed in this soil, it grows to a tree. You plant the seed in this soil, it grows into a rose. You plant the seed in that soil, it's an apple tree, something like that. I think that's the point that Paul's getting at, that sin at the seed form is the exact same for everybody. Every sin in seed form is the exact same. It's a failure to honor God, as he says. It's a failure to thank God. It's a failure to worship God, a failure to glorify God. It is a replacing of God with yourself. And every sin at its seed form is the exact same. It would look the same. You could not tell the difference between any sin when it's in its seed form. That's what Paul's trying to point to. Every sin is the same. In seed form, every sin looks the same. That's the seed of sin. So every sin that you've ever committed, I want you to think for a moment in your mind. Maybe pick a sin that you've committed. I don't care what it is. That sin, if you were to dig down under that sin and follow the line down to, down to, the, to, to the roots of it, maybe trace it back to the seed of it, it would look the same as every other person in this room. Every sin that we've committed looks the same as everybody else in this room in seed form. But this passage doesn't just talk about the seed of sin. It also talks about the fruit of sin. It talks about the fruit of sin. Number two, the fruit of sin. So Paul moves from explaining the essence of sin and the heart of sin and showing its very, to showing its various fruits. What does it look like when that seed is planted? And what does it look like when that seed of sin, that rebellion against God, replacing creature with creator, when it grows up, what does it look like? We can't see the heart of a person. None of us can see each other's hearts and judge each other's hearts. But we can see the fruit of that. We can't see you replacing God on the throne, but we can see the, the symptoms of that. Just like a doctor, when you go into the doctor, they, they can't see the virus in you, but they can say, what are some of your symptoms? A runny nose, a cough, a headache, a temperature. Um, pain in certain areas. All of those things are symptoms of something that's deeper going inside. And in the same way, Paul is going to say, hey, he, this is the problem that all of us have, but here are the symptoms to show you that you do have this problem of sin. So in the same way, Paul's going to list a bunch of sin symptoms of a rebellious heart that worships the creature rather than the creator. And we start off in this passage, that, 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 that list of sins begins in verse 26 and goes through 32. And we'll notice that the very first sin that Paul points to is homosexuality. 
And I don't think, I want to start off by saying this, this sin in this passage is not the main point of this passage. Homosexuality is not the main point of this passage, but I want to give attention to it as much as the text does. Okay, And as your pastor, I think that we are, as a culture, as a, as, as a people, we're faced with this, this, this sin a lot in our lives. Maybe some of you have relatives who struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, maybe some of you have children or, or like close, close family or friends that do. Maybe someone in here does struggle with that. So I think it would, be, it would not be fair to you for me to just skip over this because I'm super uncomfortable talking about it uh, or you're super uncomfortable talking about it. God has mentioned it here for a reason. I think he does it for a reason. So I want to I focus in on homosexuality here for a moment. So what I want to say about it is this. One, this passage does speak about it. It does speak about homosexuality as a sin. Some might argue um, that this, uh, when you see homosexuality in the Bible, it's speaking of some kind of uh, um, relationship called pederasty, which was uh, an older man having a relationship with a, a boy, like a teenage-year-old boy. But this passage doesn't mention boys. It says men. And it also speaks of women having that same kind of relationship. So I, don't, I do believe this is speaking of two adult, consensual people having a relationship with one another of the same sex. I think that that's what it's talking about. So this passage does speak of homosexuality. But number two, this passage does speak of homosexuality more than the other sins on this list. If you look, there's in your English Bible, there's over 50 words dedicated to talking about this sin. And in the other part of it, it just uses one word to describe each sin, like just in name only. So for some reason, Paul does speak of it more in this passage than in the other, uh, than the other sins in this passage. He does refer to it more, but why is that? Is it because he's saying it's the main sin? Is it because he's saying it's the worst sin? Is it because he's saying um, in some way this is the most prominent sin? I don't think that's Paul's point. Paul does not point to homosexuality because it's because of the severity of that sin. He points to homosexuality because of the clarity of that sin. And here's what I mean by that. Paul, when he sees homosexuality, he sees that as a clear example of what he's just spoken of, of going against the nature of what it means to be human, which is to glorify God. We exchange our nature to do things that are against our nature. And I think Paul says, hey, there's an obvious uh, picture of that in this sin. It's a going against uh, the nature of a person to do that. But, third point on that is, this passage does not speak of homosexuality as a more sinful, but as equally sinful with the rest of these sins. We contend to find other people's sin much more sinful than ours. That's a tendency that all humans do. Um, my sin is not as bad as someone else's sin. Okay, And we can be tempted to say that sin over there that we don't participate in is way worse than the sin over here. And as we read this passage, we should not respond to it that way because this passage speaks of other sins. So any good preacher, uh, if you notice any good preacher, what they'll do with a, an application or an illustration or something like that, they'll give a real clear example of an application and then give you a bunch of little applications that follow in the same pattern, okay? So they'll spend some time establishing the application, and then from there gives a few little examples that would follow along, okay? I think that's what Paul does. He gives a clear example of something, and then gives 
other smaller, give smaller time to some other examples that are equally applicable as that. So that's what Paul does. So he mentions homosexuality and spends time there, but then he goes on to other sins. He says in the following verses, he says they, when he says they, he's not referring back to those who commit homosexuality, but they, as in all humans, they are filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Notice, what does it mean to be full of murder? It means that murder is going on inside of you towards somebody else, not on the outside. We'll talk about that in a second. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, prideful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents is in this list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and approving of sin. Now, as I read that list, all of us uh, just got hit by that arrow. All of us, including me, just got hit by that arrow. Uh, if you've ever been on a basketball team or tried out for a basketball team, you got to go and you got to wait to see if you're on the list, right? And once they post the list and hang it up, then you can go and see, is my name on this list? Because you don't know if your name's on that list or not. Your name is on this list. My name is on this list. And you don't have to wait for it like that. Every single one of us is on this list. And I think this list points to the fact that sin, again, is the same in each and every single one of us, but manifests itself differently in every single one of us. And Paul, or yeah, Paul's making the same point here that Jesus made. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew chapters 5 through 7? It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, but Paul says there, hey, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. And some of you are saying, great, I don't murder. But then Jesus goes on to say, well, have you ever spoken an evil word against your brother? Have you ever called your brother foolish? Well, you're also liable to the same judgment. Paul says, you've heard that it was said, don't, or sorry, Jesus says this. Jesus says, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. Don't cheat on your spouse. And you might reply, great, I don't cheat on my spouse. But have you ever lusted? Well, that's adultery in your heart. Paul's making the same point that Jesus made, that sin begins in our heart. The same seed. Remember that seed is always the same. Now it manifests itself differently. What I don't want you to come away from hearing this is that someone who steals a pack of gum should receive the same punishment as someone who's murdered. I'm not saying that. And that's not what God's saying. That In this world, we have to, in some way, weigh sins differently, right? We, that's why we have different punishments for different crimes. So on this side of things, I'm not saying that every, every, every person who's gossiped is equally uh, the same as someone who's murdered, like Charles Manson or something like that. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that down in your heart, every sin that's committed is the same in seed form. In seed form, it's the same. Some of us let that anger grow into harsh words. Some of us let that anger grow into being physically violent. Some of us let that, grow, that anger grow into murder. But no matter how big the plant is, the seed is still the same. That's the problem. So we've seen the seed of sin, that is replacing God with us, putting ourselves on the throne instead of him. We've seen some fruit of that sin um, that's mentioned here in this passage. Isn't that all of our sin is mentioned here? But... Now we can think about how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this truth of sin? 
we might be responding right now in our hearts like, how dare you list me next to a murderer? Or how dare you list me at all in this list? How is what what I'm doing, how is that a sin? But I want you to remind you, if you're saying that, if that's the response to to this passage, then you're actually, it's a self-fulfilling thing because you're fulfilling the passage, what it's already said, that you're replacing God in your heart with yourself. So as we respond to the sin, I think number one, we need to think this list should break your heart for other people's sin. This list should break your heart for other people's sin. God, when he, when he is, is describing these sins, he uses the phrase, and he gave them up three times. He gave them up to a debased mind. He gave them up to foolish thinking. He gave them up to this. I think that's pointing to the fact that God, as we sin, there's a sense in which God is allowing us to, to receive what we want from that sin. God doesn't cause any of us to sin. It breaks his heart that we do sin, but in some sense, he honors that choice that you make to continue in sin. And that breaks his heart, and I think it should break our hearts as well. When you see other people in sin, it should break your hearts. But we need to react to sin the way Jesus reacts to sin in other people. How did Jesus react to people? Jesus was um, pejoratively called friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. Christians, are you described as friend of sinner? Would you get accused of being a friend of sinners, someone who spends way more time than they should with someone who's sinful? I think that that's not a bad way to be considered. Someone who wants to be around people who struggle with sin because you can help them. But notice how Jesus was a friend of sinner. He went to their house and he ate with them, but then they came out on the other side wanting to flee their sin rather than flee to their sin. Now, we need to interact with people in that same way. Can you love people in their sin the way Jesus loves people in their sin? Because he does not love them deeper into their sin. He loves them out of their sin. So, friend, may this list break your heart for other people's sin, and yet you might love them in the way that Christ does, when how he interacts with sinners, not loving them into their sin, not chastising them for their sin, but calling them lovingly out of that sin. But number two, before you do that, we should, this list should break your heart for other people's sin, but also this list should bring you to your knees about your sin. None of us should hear this passage and think, whew, glad it wasn't me, glad I didn't get mentioned. None of us can come away from that. And none of us should come away from this saying, Their sin is worse than mine. The sin that you hate the most should be the sin you see in the mirror. The sin that you hate the most should be the sin that you see in the mirror. You should hear this and realize that your sin at its core is the same as everyone else's. And that should be humbling to us. Because sin, there's no sin that makes somebody else harder to save than another sin. As you read that list, it doesn't matter if you're a murderer, if you're envious, if you're a gossip, if you have homosexual desires, none of those things make you harder to save than somebody else. So the person that struggles with that sin doesn't make them harder to save. They have the equally same problem as you and God can save all. So this list should break your heart for other people's sin. This sin should bring you to your knees over your sin. And finally, this list should bring you to the cross. 
Every single one of us has this sickness of sin in us, this seed planted in our hearts. We've replaced God with ourselves. Every single one of us has the same problem. And this problem can only be cured through the cross, what Jesus has done on the cross. We're going to have some time later on in chapter 3 to really dig in how Jesus does that. But to suffice it to say, this list is a really heavy list. Even as I read it at the beginning, you were like, if you felt like me, you're like, man, this is, this is a heavy, not very fun list. Um, really, you, you could look at it as a mountain. Every time I read a verse, it was like more and more and more sin piled on the mountain high and high. And you might think and look at that sin. How can that mountain be so high? And what can we do about that mountain of sin that's placed in front of us? Well, know that no matter how high that mountain of sin becomes, Jesus's love is greater. Jesus's love and his death on the cross is greater than that. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. So no matter what your sin is this morning, hopefully you have a clearer picture of what that sin is. Hopefully um, you have a clearer picture of sin that you might repent of your sin first and foremost. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, man, I need to repent of sin. I need to turn from my sin. Hopefully this, sin, this passage can speak to us to call us not only to repent of our own sin, but to call others to repent of their sin. But we need to run and point to the only cure for our sin, which is Christ. The one who not only lived a perfect life that we can never live, died the death that we should have died, and rose from the dead to give us new life. And he died for every kind of person on that list. Note that the gossip requires the same sacrifice as the murderer. The disobedient to parents. Some of us were like, amen, that's a sin. Disobedient to parents. That requires the same sacrifice as being insolent and hotter and haughty and a hater of God. All of those sins require the same sacrifice. So this morning, let's look to that one sacrifice that was made, Jesus, for all of our sins. And know that no matter how great our sin is, Jesus' love is greater. His grace is greater. Let's pray.